Welcome to the Deal Flow Podcast. Brian Ray here, um, as always. And I got another guest on today. Eric, how's it going? I'm doing great, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Awesome. We'll give a quick introduction to who you are, where you're at, what you do, and we'll get into uh, this particular episode in just a second. Sure. My name is Eric Krauss. I'm a partner at Exit Value Partners, which is a subset of Comet & Company. We are a sell-side M&A firm. We've been in existence for 20, uh, I think one or two years now. We are former owners who have gotten into the transactions business and represent owners selling uh, across the globe, but predominantly North America, anywhere between three and 100 million. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of the M&A guys I come across, um, like myself, they're former owners who have sold a business. I don't do sell-side work, obviously, but but it's there's there's a, a lot of people who sell their business and they get into advising people on selling their business. Um, and yet there's kind of a stigma around using a sell-side advisor or broker, whatever term you want to use. Uh, why do you think that might be? You know, good question. As relative to the stigma, I think people look at it like, hey, why would I pay somebody to do something that I can do myself, especially for an entrepreneur, right? Entrepreneurs are interesting folks. And of course, I am one, but used to be one with my own company. Entrepreneurs are the most optimistic people in the world, Ryan. I mean, you'd have to say this, right? I mean, you have to be in order to get past all of the speed bumps and pitfalls and roadblocks that are in front of entrepreneurs every day. So I think naturally every entrepreneur says, hey, why would I take a piece of the deal that I've built up my whole career and give it to somebody else to sell it when I have a buyer calling me asking to buy it on my own? So I think that's where the stigma is based. Certainly rational. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. You you call me optimistic. My wife calls me crazy. It's it just depends on the <laughs> point of perspective. <laughs> Sometimes you know, I have yet on that on that tone. Let's talk about how optimistic I have yet to meet a business owner when we ask for projections to give me a set of projections which are lower than the year that they were in. So <laughs> exactly. We're all going up. Exactly. Okay. So uh, a couple things. Let's go. Let's can I get through. Um, so as a sell side advisor, obviously you're representing the seller, um, but really it seems the more sell side advisors I talk to, they're not representing both sides, but they do play kind of that intermediary role where they're trying to make sure all parties are on the same path, but you also have to know what a good buyer wants, right? And, and how to find a good buyer. And that's part of what you're you're trying to do is bring a, a, a buyer that's going to pay the most money. Um, and so it's kind of like fishing. You know, if you're going to go fishing, you got to have the right bait. You know, you got to have the right thing to attract a good buyer. Uh, so maybe let's go through a few things that um, you found that you would say good buyers or, or um, high quality buyers, having to phrase that, are looking for uh, and then why those things are important. Can I give you a quick story about fishing? Yeah, I love fishing. So yeah, this will tie right into it. So years and years ago, I was in the direct marketing business back when I had a contact center. And we were doing, as part of uh, a company that we were with, we were doing optimization, um, performance coaching, and then we were helping underwrite some financing for infomercials. You remember, just wait, or what do they say? Uh, but wait, there's more. Wait, there's more, yeah. So a gentleman down in Florida had this invention called a magic fishing snake, and I had to go down and meet with him. And for most of the day, we went out and cast this like eight-inch snake into these ponds around central Florida, trying to find the biggest bass. And he thought it was the... Next best thing in fishing, didn't catch a single thing. And then just after lunch, Doug Hannon came on the boat. I don't know if you remember him, he was called the Bass Professor. Mm -mm. And he tied the tiniest little lure on the end of his <laughs> on the end of his line, and he caught like every fish there was possible. <laughs> and it was kind of gave me the idea that 
you know, you could be in the best pond, you could be in the best boat, you could have the biggest lure, right? But that's knowledge. The knowledge that you lack is what are they biting on today, right? And I think that goes to what we're talking about here on this podcast. And if you're going to sell, I don't care what it is, right? You want to know what that buyer or the ideal buyer is looking for, right? That's going to set you up for the best possible transaction, most repeatable, the highest price, et cetera. So I think before any sellers in business, people looking to sell uh, what's typically the largest asset they'll ever own in their lives. I think one thing that's very important is for each seller to understand what the buyers in that market are looking for. And we'll go over four or five things today that I wish every seller knew or knows before they try to get into a transaction. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'll tell you what I always say. I'm curious if you would agree with this or not. I know it's on the list, but I'm curious if you'd say it's number one or not. I always tell potential sellers, and this is for perspective. I'm not talking to someone who's got a CFO and, you know, I'm talking to average small business owners, right? So guys who, uh, guys or gals are doing it themselves. They might have a bookkeeper, maybe their CPA is doing it, but they don't have a CFO on staff. Um, the first thing I always say is make sure your books are good. They're clean. They're crisp. To me, that's always number one. Um, I know it's on the list for you. Is it number one or is there a different one that you like number one? You know, I don't, it's funny. Number one in terms of what the buyers want or number one in terms of what should the sellers want, right? I think clean well, financials are what not, everyone not, yeah, wants. Yeah, let's, that's good. Let's, <laughs> let's take that one. That, like that's universal. Like everybody wants that one. And, and let's describe what clean means, right? Look, our tax code incentivizes us to run our books in such a way where it lowers our tax burden, right? And then every year we show the lowest possible profit. Finally, in one year we decide to sell and we've got to show the highest net income adjusted EBITDA, SDE, whatever you want to call it, right? So we're doing two different things here. And I think buyers completely understand that it's made up for in you know the discretionary piece of the SDE or the adjustments in EBITDA. What we're trying to find, I'm not necessarily like the, the gold standard would be audited books. And let's face it, audits are expensive. Small business owners, it's probably not worth the ROI. Larger business, 15, 20, 30 million, it'd be worth the investment to have it audited. The next one would be reviewed financial, reviewed by your accountant, and the last one would be compiled. And then below that are non-compiled, but you know, financials. So what we like to see are books that are according to consistent accounting policies and procedures, hopefully in accordance with GAAP. We love accrual because buyers love accrual, but you can make a conversion from cash to accrual. What we're trying to find is that expenses and revenues over time go into the same buckets, right? Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, revenue A goes to revenue A, expense C goes to expense C. And over time, that we can paint a picture for the buyer to which they can do due diligence and understand, okay, here are the financials based on invoices or receipts. Those ultimately become cash and deposits and bank records. And then everything, what they call ties out. So that everything makes sense, either through a quality of earnings report or a proof cash report, however you want to do it. But we want something that proves out. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be audited. We just want something that ties out. Yeah. And okay. So I said it's number one and, and, and you said, well, it depends on the perspective. And I'm glad you clarified that for me. What, what I'm, what I'm pushing on there is um, when I talk to an owner about selling, it seems that oftentimes 
if I send them something like yourself or, or a PE group, one of the complaints is, hey, man, these books are a wreck. <laughs> like, I, I, don't even, I don't even know how to get started. So that's why I talk about sell, uh, sellers, you talk about selling, you know, not today. If you're, if you're going to work with someone like your group or another group, then you, you guys can help with that. But if you're saying, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm considering selling next year, next two or three years. Now is the time to start getting the books in order, right? That's, you don't want to, the, the sooner you can do it, the better, it would seem. Yeah, 100%. Obviously, you want to be on some type of a system. QuickBooks is, you know, the most widely used system. You want something that uh, can be exported, something that's not a manual Excel spreadsheet, if possible. QuickBooks is kind of the, you know, the most used one out there. But you, you start there, very consistent accounting power, really bookkeeping policies and procedures. And then from an accounting perspective, how you treat uh, various things on the income statement and balance sheet are ultimately important because they will reflect what actually happened in the business. And you think about it from the buyer's perspective, what are they buying, right? They're buying a mechanism which will show profits long-term that they can recap first recapture their investment and then make a certain amount going forward. So buyers really trying to find something that says, okay, uh, if I pay a dollar for this, I'm going to make, you know, 10 cents a year and I'm going to get that money back in, in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that's having clean financials is the first input into showing that payback period. Yeah. And just one other final thing on this. Um, this came up one time. I can't remember what the company was, but they, they their margins were so high uh, that no one would take them because it was, you know, let's say it's supposed to be a 15 to 22 percent margin business and they were doing like 45 percent. And the buyers are like, yeah, there's no way. Uh, M&A guys are like, yeah, we're not taking this market. There's no way. It's, it's just not – the books are too good to be true. And so, um, you know, having the books <laughs> make sense because a good buyer is also going to understand kind of where those, you know, 17%, 21%, whatever the range is supposed to be, they're going to know the range. And so as long as you're in that range, it gives them a sense of, okay, this is this is good. But if you're way outside that range, you've, you've now created a problem even by trying to make yourself look really good because they know that that – that something something's wrong with the business. If you're saying that, you know, it's a it's a fifteen to twenty percent margin business, and you're doing you know forty seven percent. Something's wrong, actually. We heard that a few years ago. We sold a, a tree service uh, actually, and the buyers, which were private equity, they, they didn't believe the numbers. Now, two years after the transaction, they believe them fully. But uh, going in, they they certainly didn't believe them because this tree service they had a particular moat. These guys are really really good. And then uh, they had to be proven out, however. There was a lot of skepticism based on what you're saying, though. Like, how are these guys so much better? But I think the buyer ultimately is thrilled that uh, that acquisition does perform better than the marketplace and is now taking, you know, those secrets from one acquisition and, and bleeding them across all the acquisitions so that uh, everything improves. Okay. So talk a little bit about money. Maybe stay there for a second. You mentioned every owner entrepreneur is always predicting this year's better than the next. Like that's, you know, this year we're going to double or 10% or hundred percent or whatever growth. Um, telling a story of growth is important. I'm sure um, is, is having this flat line. Like I do two million a year, every year for the past 10 years. Is that a, is that a pro that a con that a negative um, versus not do two, 2.2, 2.4, 2 2.6, or don't even saying like two, three, four, like does, does it matter? Is that industry specific? Do you have to show growth? Or just being kind of a steady, steady right there at the at the same level is that, is that okay? Yeah, I think it depends on where the company is in the life cycle of business. You know, there's you know younger companies are more you know more easily able to grow than older companies are, right? I mean, if you look at 
a hundred year old company, they've pretty much captured market share versus a two year old company, which maybe is just getting market share. So it depends on where the business is in the, in the life cycle of companies. Um, what buyers really want to see is some type of a stable growth or, you know, some stability there, right? If it goes from a million to 2 million to 4 million to 8 million, it's difficult to project what that value is going to be for that buyer long-term, right? Is it going to go from eight to 16 or is it going to go from eight to nine to nine and a half, right? So then it basically, Ryan, that would come to a valuation issue. What we love to see are firms that change, you know, obviously going higher, but predictably they can do that. Right. So maybe they project, okay, we're going to say go from two to 2.4 million and then they do it. And the next year, two to 2.4 to 2.8, something like that. Those are more easily uh, able to be valued with any type of model. High growth, look, it's a great model. We love selling high growth. It's more difficult to come to a, an agreed upon valuation. Uh, slow growth, easier to value. I think it gives a little bit more trust for the buyer and they say, okay, we feel comfortable giving this a, a higher peg in valuation because it's done. Hopefully what it's going to do for us, it's done the last five years or 10 years and it's going to continue to do the same thing. So buyers love stability. Okay. And, and so that does bring a question up. How many years? I know, you know, there's te let's, let's, let's put the tech unicorns to the side. Your average business owner run a small business and maybe a service business or something like that. Um, you know, how many years do they do they need to be in business before they kind of say, okay, hey, this is where we're at, and this now we can go to market maybe to sell because uh, you know I bought the business, I want to grow it, I want to sell it. Um, do they need to be around or they start the business rather? Uh, do they is it like three years, five years, seven years? Does that matter? Can you sell a business that's two years old? You could. Um, it's a you know a trickier transaction. I mean, typically, when you, let's assume everything we're talking about now is a startup. So you start at zero, right? So your first year of growth as a percentage is going to be incredible, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> and then right. theoretically, your second year will be your less incredible, and third will be less incredible. Well, you know, you get everything off that you know it real quickly. The hockey stick goes up and to the right again. Buyers are looking for stability. Um, not to say that those businesses are not sellable. But they won't they won't trade on the type of multiples that a more stable, you know, mature business will trade at just because it's, there's more risk. And you've got risk in a number of different categories, right? Risk from uh, pricing in the marketplace, risk of uh, products. If, if you have your own products that you've uh, built, developed, manufactured or marketing, if, um, you know, you're in new geographies that uh, maybe you're less mature. I think a lot of it comes down to org chart risk, right? You've had people on your business now for a year, two years. Are they going to stick around after a transaction? So younger businesses are inherently more risky. The risk will show up in the lower pricing. So they can be sold, but they will show, you know, be sold at a lower valuation than a more mature company at a, at a kind of a longer rate with longer tenured employees and clients, et cetera. And I see that talking to owners, um, you know, they're like, oh man, we're three, four years in, we want to sell, but God, we're, we're doubling up every year. And it's like, oh, okay. If you can double up every year for the next, you know, 40 years and yeah, never, never sell this thing because, but at some point the, the, uh, the capital looks a lot different, right? You got more employees, you got more expenses. It's a lot harder to, to balance those things. And I think that is tough for owners, especially, you know, a business that's less than five years that, that did want to grow it, does want to sell it. Um, they try to get in the spot of, you know, when, when do we kind of level this thing off? Because 
you can grow businesses extremely fast if you're good uh, early on. And then to your point, you got to do something different to keep that growth rate going, either bring a different business in or you know, new division or whatever. You mentioned org charts. Okay. This is a question we ask every potential seller. How involved in your business are you? And sometimes they will say, man, without me, this thing can't run. And I'm, like, I'm always like, oh, oh, uh oh, uh oh. <laughs> Unless you're selling to the right buyer, you, you might have said the wrong answer. Um, it's not always the terrible thing to say, but there's a lot of pride, as you mentioned, in starting a business or buying a business and running it and owning it. Um, but to me, this is one of the things that um, I'm not sure all owners have a good um, understanding of why it's important to possibly set the, separate themselves from the business if they're looking to sell um, and, and how to go about that. Like who should they be bringing in to help them, um, you know, from an org chart perspective, who should they be bringing in to help them kind of step away so that it is transferable to someone else? You know, probably the two most important questions, even before you consider a transaction, though, the number one would be, why am I selling, right? I mean, do I want to go do other things? Am I retiring? You know, am I getting divorced? Um, I mean, you know, do I have some type of a terminal health condition, right? All those things need to be flushed out, and that kind of sets the tone for the strategy of both the seller and the buyer. <clears throat> younger organization, let's say we've got a, a younger organization that's three years in, and the owner says, look, I love doing IT. I'm an IT company. I hate HR. I hate sales. I hate doing accounts receivable. So I want to keep working, but I just want to spend three plates instead of 12, right? So that's a different rationale than the owner who's 65 and has an HVAC company, no uh, children in the business, no real succession plan. It says, look, I just want to retire, right? So why? Understanding your why is really, really important. Right from there, <clears throat> once you kind of get your why down, really the next thing to go about is, you know, how am I going to transition out of this thing? Right. Do I handle right all of the sales? Do I handle all of the client uh, services? Do I handle the accounting, the finance? Do I handle the HR, the hiring, et cetera? And what we try to say to owners, we came up with this thing called the PACT team, P-A-C-T. And this is a really, really important thing. So the people who handle or the executives or supervisors and managers who handle your sales, that's your people process. Sorry, let's do people process first, right? So your HR and your process. So if it's HVAC, who are your technicians? Who handles your HR, et cetera? A is accounting finance. C is clients, either new or existing. And T is technology. And look, every bit business utilizes some type of technology, whether it's uh, someone carving headstones or you know an MSP. So the packed team, those four people or the people who are running those four departments, if they are already in existence in the company and will transition with the owner, then that business will be ready to sell. So kind of go to why am I selling and is this business ready to sell? And having a solid org chart there is really at the top of minds of a lot of buyers because they can maintain that stability and predictability of just the service level of the business, right? It's going to continue even after this owner departs, retires, et cetera. Yeah, so, yeah, no, it makes sense. And then I'm thinking if I'm a business owner, I'm trying to grow a business um, or, or bring these people in to help me sell. How do I ensure that they want to stay on after a transaction so that the buyer wants to buy, like they may all leave. So is, is, is that part of a contract negotiation? Is that incentivizing them? Like how do you keep these key people around from the seller standpoint so that the buyer you know, is wanting to, uh, you know, bring them on and, and transition them as well. 
again, kind of going back to the why, right? The two different things. If you have a, a younger seller who's selling to a larger org, let's say a PE firm, and they want to stay on board, then that's an easier task to go to your team and say, look, here's why we're doing it, right? We're going to be able to do more with less. You know, we're going to be able to go from a $5 million company to a $100 million company. We'll have more things to sell. We'll have more uh, backup. Maybe all of us can go home and stop answering emails at five o'clock on Friday night, you know, all those things. If an owner wants to retire, right, then it's more important that they really meet with, I mean, hopefully you got to be careful on this one. This is a really, really sensitive topic. Like who do you tell in your organization that you're selling? Because you might lose people before you even start a transaction. So you have to be very cognizant of there is risk here in bringing people on board. However, there's also risk in telling your people too late that I've sold this. So you need buy-in and whether that comes through, you know, agreements you have with existing or key employees, or you have a frank conversation with them and say, look, this is what I'm going to do and why I'm going to do it. And I think the big thing, Ryan, is to understand based on your why that the strategy has to involve finding the right buyer, right? It's not as easy just to say, okay, this person called me, I'm going to sell to them. What we as advisors do primarily is we find the right fit, right? And the right fit means, you know, for the owner who's wants to retire, all the stakeholders that he or she cares about are taken care of during the transaction. So that means your clients, your employees, your vendors, et cetera. You make sure that buyer is going to do what you want with the company after you are no longer there. No, a lot of times that comes down to just, do I like this person? Do we have similar goals? Do we look at our industry and the world the same way? And Ryan, what we find is 99 out of 100 times that if you put the fit first, not only do you have higher retention from your employees and your clients, but ultimately you wind up getting the highest selling price. No, I mean, I think uh, about a year, year and a half ago, I kind of cobbled together this thing, which is sales is the right offer to the right prospect at the right time. Um, and and ultimately what that means is, you know, there's all these things about how to be a great closer and how to do all this stuff. But ultimately, if you find the right fit and you talked about the right time, it becomes really easy to make a sale. Uh, and the same thing here is when you're selling a business, it's two people or, peop or group of people, whatever it is. And, and so it has to be a fit, like trying to convince someone to buy or to sell. Um, there's so much human element that gets lost in some of this. I'll talk to people and they go, you know, why would anybody ever sell their business? It's like, well, I don't know. They're, they're humans. They have a lot of reasons. Like, you know, you've touched on some of them. Some of them, just, they don't like doing what they're doing anymore. Some of them have made a bunch of money. Some of them want to move. Some of them get divorced. And and, and we, the M&A space needs more exposure, I think. Uh, and it needs more exposure in the human element as well, because it's, it's just humans doing a transaction is all that it is. And so uh, aligning incentives and values and stuff like that, uh, uh, it's talked about, I think, kind of in in those meetings, but outside, it's like, oh, we're going to sell a business. And it's like, yeah, that's still, that's a very human-to-human -human transaction, and a lot of things need to be aligned other than just the financials. 100%. If you think about it from a, a, and I hate to call anybody's business small, right, because it's a big piece of their life. It's a big piece of their career. Sure. You know, it's represented a lot of things. It's typically the largest, trans sorry, the largest asset they'll ever own in their lives. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it's the most risky. It represents their retirement, right? Their nest egg, their kids' inheritance, their, um, you know, dreams of, uh, 
you know, having a second vacation home, you know, it represents a lot of things that are captured in that asset and a lot of personality to it uh, as well. Um, and a lot of times it means, you know, frankly, as much to them as not just career, but it could be a part, part of their personality. I mean, it's just, it's, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to put it above family, right. But let's face it. It's their baby. It is. And I think from our perspective for sell side advisors, at least the ones who are similar uh, to us in the spirit that when it comes time for that owner to ultimately monetize that asset, we want to make sure it's done in a way that not only gets the highest valuation, right, but is treated with the proper amount of care to make sure not only sold at the highest price, all of the stakeholders' interests are aligned, and then ultimately it transitions in the way that the owner would want the first time, you know, it's mm-hmm. hard to sell a business two and three and four times. You know, you don't want to fail in the transaction. And really the percentage, I think what we get paid for is not so much, you know, the the technical, the the numbers, the, the analysis. I think really what we get paid for is to manage the personalities into finding that ideal buyer. That's the difference, I think, between selling it on your own or going to, you know, your basic um you know, selling it through a friend who sells, let's say, real estate, for example. Like we've done a lot of research in the industries. And we're going to go through a long process and find that right buyer. So that way, ultimately, comes time to transact. It goes well, full monetization. And you look back years later and say, you know what? That was a really, really good experience. I know we're up against the clock. Do you have a few extra minutes or do you have a hard time? I have plenty of time. Yeah. Okay, good. So we had two more uh, things I wanted to go over. Um had a deal last year for a client. The company experienced hockey stick growth, crazy growth. I mean, they're like three or four years old, going crazy. One of the issues was 70, I mean, this is, these guys are doing, I don't know, 40 million a year, something like that. After like three or four years in, it was crazy. Um, but 75, 85% of the revenue came from one client. And it's really tough because for this owner, they have to take care of that client. For obvious reasons, but they also are, want to take care of them for other obvious reasons, right? So they have to take care of them because they, that's what's growing their business. But you'd be foolish not to take care of a customer from just a, a logical perspective who has grown, you help grow your business from nothing to you know thirty or forty million dollars in revenue. Um, and yet, from an exit standpoint, it's not very attractive because you know if Bob leaves and the client gets mad, then eighty five percent of the company or whatever it is 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 gone. Um, um, so. How do you think about balancing that? Because it is, it's very personal, especially with your clients. You get very personal. You want to take care of them uh, and they're giving you a ton of work. You want to do good service uh, and you're afraid if you expand, you might not provide that same level of service. And then, you know, you've lost two clients instead of one. Um, but on the flip side, to sell your business, you know, having one customer that's, you know, 75, 85% of your business seems pretty risky unless maybe there's a contract. Is there exceptions to that rule? How do you think about customer concentration, I guess, is what I'm I'm getting at. Yeah, buyers hate customer concentration with a caveat. It depends on who the the client is, right? If it's a really coveted client that the buyer can't get, or or maybe they lost out on the contract and they want it, then, you know, you can overcome that hurdle. You know, typically it's an issue because if that one client goes, or if you have two or three that represent over half of the revenue, you know, it's a big risk to the buyer. They don't know how that relationship is between the seller and the client immediately, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, I don't know if it's a good relationship, a great relationship, bad or whoever. 
they don't know who owns that client relationship. Is that client the brother-in-law, right? Is that the uncle? Is it the nephew of the owner? They don't know that. So typically what we see that is handled uh, in terms of structure, Ryan. Um, a little bit of valuation decrease, but it's structure. So if you want to get paid on a big client and it represents a large part of your um, revenue stream, kind of two things. If you're going to stick around and manage that client, it's your relationship, then you may be asked to stay for two, three, four years, right? If you want to retire or you want to go do something else, then that will typically be handled through some type of an earnout structure, which we you know do our best to avoid earnouts. However, Sometimes you got to take them, otherwise you leave money on the table. So it can be de-risk. When you ever hear de-risk in a transaction, that means lower price or more difficult <laughs> structure, right? Uh, but a, you know, a big problem with M&A is the asymmetry of risk, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like two big public companies where I know everything there is to know about them because all of their financials are filed and public mm -hmm. to me. They don't produce annual reports. You know, a lot of these things are accomplishing you know, crossing that risk bridge is what we call it. And that's what a, a good advisor will put a plan together before you go to market and say, okay, here's probably what the market's going to say. And here's going to be our counter argument to that. Make sure that's acceptable to the owner before you go to market, prepare them for any potential contingencies or de-risking. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately go into it with eyes open. And if we found the right buyer, they will understand and hopefully put a structure together that makes everybody happy. What about uh, assignability of contracts for those, you know, those customers? Is that a, is that a problem of concern? Only certain types of deals. I hear that from time to time come up. Is you know the, the contracts are assignable? Is that an asset transaction only? Equity transaction? Uh, when does that become a? When does that? Yeah, typically, you know, predominantly we see asset <clears throat> uh, purchases, not stock purchases. There's a number of different reasons for that. The number one reason is just better for the buyer from a tax perspective to buy assets. They do hopefully remove themselves from any carry forward liabilities that are unknown to them. So most purchases are asset purchase. In that event, you would want to make sure that your contracts with your clients, if, if you have revenue that's generated based on contracts, um, are all assignable for change of control. Now, sometimes you'll have a notice provision in there that the seller will have to give notice to the client that they are selling the business. That's not preferable. What you really want is pure assignability. Now, in a stock transaction, you can get away from all of that because you're virtually buying the company as is, uh, carry forward liabilities and all. And then typically then the notice provision wouldn't necessarily kick in. I mean, it could, but it depends on how they're written. And then you wouldn't worry, have, to, have to worry about assigning contracts. But gotcha. e either way, in either scenario, you can still sell the company. The preferred way is to if you generate revenues based on contracts, have an assignability uh, clause in the contracts. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So we talked about representation a few times. Let's, let's dig into it. Um, you know, this uh, is the big one. This is the big one because, you know, as you you know what we do, which is talk to sellers about selling business every day. Yeah. We don't represent sell side ever, yeah. um, but we do talk to them about that. And at the end of every call, I always say, do you want to deal with the buyer directly? Or do you want an advisor or broker? I always ask that question. Uh, and they about 80% of the time, they say, I don't know. You know, I don't, what, what do you think? And I, I kind of go through the pros and cons of each. Um, 
But let's so I I have my opinion on pros and cons. Let's hear your opinion first, and then I'll, I'll maybe ask some questions about what I think some of the pros and cons are going a direct buyer route. And I'm saying direct buyer that could be a strategic, could be private equity. Those are different types of acquisitions, of course. But it is a direct buyer versus going with an advisor slash broker. So let's talk about the data first, and then we'll talk about the emotions later, mm -hmm. because I think those are the two biggest elements you need to consider when <clears throat> deciding whether to use a representative or not. So the data, um, if you use a sell-side advisor, you're on average going to get 25% higher selling price. Now, that's a study out of University of Alabama, I think. Uh, I can send you the link to it. But on average, uh, and they studied thousands of transactions, you'll get about 25% uh, lift in transaction value. Um, the other piece is you're going to be three times more likely to sell. So if you want a higher chance of selling at a higher price, use, use an advisor. That's the data. The emotional piece of it, and kind of going back to, I guess two things. Number one, it's a very, very time-consuming process. You know, it could be as fast as three months or as long as 12 months or even longer to sell your company. Um, our work, you know, we we have seven of us on board. We spend a ton of time not only preparing the company for sale, presenting it to the market, negotiating with the market, but then ultimately getting through all of the big contracts. You know, you you could have as many four as four or six or eight different legal agreements in uh, one transaction, all of which have to be negotiated. It takes a long time. Due diligence takes a long time. So, one one thing we hate to see is when an owner decides to sell and they don't use a representative, they're going to take their eye off of the ball of running their company to its detriment while they are in the process of selling. If and when that happens you'll see a lower selling price if things are pegged on trailing 12 months. So we hate to see that happen. I think the other thing too, from an emotional perspective is, you know, this is the, this is the owner's baby. At some point in time, the buyer, someone on their side is going to tell you that your baby's ugly. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that's, that's hard true. to hear. And that's once true. you hear it, you know, you kind of jolt back and say, well, what are you talking about? And they could be making a comment about, Hey, I don't like how you did these financials or I don't like your contracts. I don't like your org charts, you know, something that would be fairly objective. But as soon as an owner hears that, you know, it immediately gives them kind of an emotional jolt, which if we're an advisor and we're in the middle, we can handle that, couch it a little bit and talk with the seller about, okay, here's something that the buyer doesn't really like. How can we counteract that to make sure that we continue down the transaction road? And I think that's a big one. I, the one thing we really hate to see is when owner goes it alone and either winds up leaving money on the table or the transaction just doesn't go through for reasons that an advisor could have prevented. Yeah. So what I usually say to, to sellers is if you know what you want to get for the company, like you say, hey, $5 million, pick a number, and you're happy if it's going to be seven, and you're going with five for some reason, because some people, they want to get out quick. They're happy to lose $2 million. They need to go. Um, but you said, say, hey, if you if you know what you want for the company, you have someone that you know will pay you that money, um, and you're willing to go through the process, then yeah, maybe, you know, maybe it is better to go solo um, or to talk to a, a one-off buyer. Um, but if you don't know the value of your company, um, you don't know 
how to go through this process. You know, you don't know how to do that stuff, then you need to talk to an advisor or a broker. And most people at that point realize they don't know the value of their company, right? They go, because that's that's the core problem. I know what my tax return says. I know what I make, but what will someone pay for it? I don't know. We talked to a group last year. They valued their company at, uh, I don't remember, we'll say it's $10, $11 million. The advisor valued it at $30 million. Right. And when he, you know, I don't do valuations, but he told me the valuation. I knew it was way off based upon what he said. Um, and so we talked to an advisor. He realized he was three X off what he thought. Um, but if you, if you said, Hey, I want to sell it to, you know, uh, my partner, or you know, I got an employee I want to sell it to. I don't want to take it to market. I want to give it to them. Or, you know, I have someone I want to sell it to and I want to get this for it. Um, then yes, then maybe that is the path for you. But if you, if you want to go to a broader market, and try to start getting bids and stuff like that in. There, it's almost impossible to do. It's not. It's not a for sale by owner that you can put on Zillow and, and work that process. I mean, I, we had a broker tell us the other day they spend three to four hundred hours on a deal. I don't know is that what you guys spend on like one of your transactions. That's a ton of time. Oh yeah, I mean that's that's uh, you know if you add up all the team members for sure. I mean that's probably an average transaction. Yeah. So, I mean, what would you say? So if, 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 would you agree if you kind of say, Hey, you know, I had a fractional CFO or I got a valuation from somewhere and it's worth this. And if I get, I got Bob over here or, you know, uh, my cousin Sally or whatever, they want to buy it. I want, I'm happy to sell it to them or someone sent me an email uh, and they want to buy it for this. Uh, it's a one-off deal. I want to do this. Would you say then maybe sell it on your own or even then bring in a, a, a broker if they don't go through the process or whatever? Well, yeah, I don't know what other brokers charge. I mean, I know what we charge. Our average rate is like five or six percent on a transaction. Mm -hmm. And that's lower middle markets. So that's kind of under, you know, 30, 40 million. Mm -hmm. I promise you, you're gonna have ROI. That's gonna be your highest ROI on anything that you'll spend. Like you're gonna make more money on that five or six than you'll than you'll make on the attorney's fees. And it'll probably right. save you a lot of attorney's fees um over the long haul. I mean, the the big thing you know, that buyers, I'm sorry, that sell side reps bring to the table is a competitive bidding process. Mm -hmm. So like what you're talking about is what is, if I've got an invention in the automobile, you know, industry and Chevy calls me, says, I want to buy it. Is that a good deal? You might think, Hey, that's a great deal. But you go to an advisor and be like, well, actually Ferrari would pay you twice that, but Tesla right. would pay you 10 times that, right? right. You're not going to have that knowledge because you're not interacting with these buyers on a daily basis. You know, for the industries that we cover, we spend a long time with each prospective buyer and understand, do they have the money to buy you or a firm like yours? What is their appetite? What do they want to do with it? Can they integrate it? What do they want to do with it long term? So before we even take it to market, you know, the firm to market, we already know, you know, where our best chances of success will be and who will pay the highest valuation. Mm -hmm. Right. And then from there, we basically take the owner's goals and we make a strategy around their goals. So, I mean, going it alone happens, you know, we cover a technology space where there are 1200 transactions in 2022 and less than 10% of them use a sell side advisor. Yeah. If you go to what I said at the top, the 25%, we bring 25% extra to the table. That's a lot of money left on the table. <laughs> and that 25%, Ryan, basically comes from making sure each firm is prepared Mm -hmm. understanding that person, you know, that seller's desires and wants, building a strategy around it, but then getting that competitive bidding marketplace, which changes the whole calculus mm -hmm. when you talk about selling your business. Because not only can you find the right buyer, but you can get the right terms and at your valuation. 
Yeah. And most owners that we send to a direct buyer come back to us and it doesn't work out. And we end up selling to a sell side broker anyways, because they they, they kind of experience it. You know, I dip my toe in the water and it's like doing a for sale boat on your house, except for a thousand times more complicated. People are calling. They want this. They need that. Why is this wrong? And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Let's, let's go that way. So it is possible. Um, but you're right. And, and, and sometimes it's, it's, <laughs> A seller needs to experience what it's like before they realize what it's like. You know, it's one of those things you don't oh, know what I it's hate like. That. Oh, it's, I hate it. It's expensive. I mean, look, if you want to sell your your house, right? A realtor is going to come say, hey, let's paint this room. Let's kind of fix that up. New curtains over here, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, right? And, and that's what an advisor will do as well. And then it, it gets expensive. Um, not so much in a real estate perspective, but on a, on a company perspective, because you've got a higher you know, typically you're hiring an M&A attorney, you know, you know, without going in down that rabbit hole, those can get crazy expensive. There are some guys out there now who are doing it on flat fee. I think that model is phenomenal. I think it's, I mean, beyond time for that to hit the marketplace, but you know, an M&A attorney, an average deal can be, you know, 15 to $50,000, no problem. So before you spend that and get nothing at the end, you know, meet with an advisor and understand if what you want is possible. And if it is, develop your strategy around it. And again, your ROI in a advisor, I promise you, is going to be probably two to three, five, ten to one. For every mm -hmm. dollar you spend, you're going to get a lot of a lot of dollars back. Okay, we'll let you with this last question. The biggest pushback we get from using a sell side advisor is, I don't want someone to put it on a website or to send out an email blast, and that's all I do. And that is a big stigma that sellers have about the industry is that a lot of brokers, advisors, they're just putting it on biz buy sale or axial or whatever it is, Craigslist, you know, whatever yeah, it yeah. is, they're hitting yeah. publish and that's it. What would you say to that? Yeah. For the generalist out there who's selling what we call main street business, um, hair salons, nail salons, pizza shops, restaurants, uh, et cetera, you know, they cover so many industries that they almost have to do that because they don't have enough time to go and research a particular buyers of either an industry or, or a geography. For specialists like myself, we cover six, you know, hard, kind of hard and fast industries. I mean, we'll sell things outside of that, but typically we try to stay in our specialties. We spend a lot of time getting to know the buyers, getting to know uh, how the things are valued and sold. I think if you can go with a specialist, then definitely go with a specialist, right? And that would alleviate your concerns because it won't be something that's cast out in the marketplace and just say, hey, this is for sale. Uh, confidentiality is obviously, in, it's paramount to our longevity in the business. And we take it very, very seriously. However, I understand that concern. Um, you know, if you're selling a tire shop, then find a specialist who sell an M&A &M uh, representative in, in tire shops. If you're, if you sell, you know, rocket launchers, then find an M&A specialist <laughs> in rocket launchers. But I think I totally get that concern. And I think the, the main street business broker is uh, incredibly important uh, as far as a service leader in our industry. However, if that's your concern, then find somebody who has a spe you know specialty in that. And the nice thing now is they can be anywhere, right? We're all working from home. We all work remote. Everybody gets it. The old days of on-site, you know, visits from buyers are, I don't want to say over, but they're much diminished. People will buy companies remote, believe it or not. 
so I think having somebody in your particular hometown who's a specialist, this is not a requirement. Um, you know, there's some great M&A firms in Texas where you are who handle things around the country. Like I said, our firm is global. We'll handle uh, things virtually around the globe, save uh, eight or 10 places. But <laughs> Awesome. Okay. Well, where can people connect with you, your firm? Where do you want us to send people to? Well, obviously they can find me through calling you, Ryan, but uh, <laughs> yeah, exitvp.com is uh, our website. And um, I'm on LinkedIn, Eric Krause, C-R-O-U-S-E. Okay. We will link to your company's website and your LinkedIn in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed the discussion. Ryan, thanks so much. Appreciate you having me.